Hello and welcome to History 327. Uh, this is today's lecture. It's on Reagan's Revolution, so I'll give you a second to go onto Moodle and get the PowerPoint. Okay, we are back. This is Reagan's Revolution, 1980 to 1988. Mainly focusing on the early part. Kind of a general overview of Reagan. Um, Reagan's a very interesting character. So if you go over one slide, you'll see my April Fool's joke for you. Um, I legitimately plan to wear this outfit for the lecture today. That is not a joke. I have a Bucky's onesie where I look like a giant beaver. Uh, I could not do it because we're not in class, but we le I legitimately plan to do this. You can ask my wife. Like I was all ready to give this lecture just for this class in a beaver onesie. It's got a little tail. It would have been probably the funniest thing you ever seen in your life. So... Can't do it in person. I'm not wearing it right now, uh, but just imagine I am, and that's humorous. Okay. So when we last talked, the Republican Party looked deader than a dodo. I would say better than dis uh, deader than disco, but uh, disco is actually very popular in this time period. But after Watergate, it really looked like the Republican Party was just dead in the water. Um, you know, Nixon and all that he did showed that there was a lot, not a lot of trust in the federal government. There's this idea that it was all crooked and everything was just not good within the, uh, just in the country as a whole. I mean, the malaise of the 70s was pretty strong. We were dealing with inflation and uh, unemployment. really impacts the country. So it appeared that Republicanism, the Republican Party is dead, and conservatism too. But when you're really honest, if you look at America as a whole, America as a whole tends to be rather conservative. And I mean that lowercase c conservative, not uppercase c conservative. But America doesn't tend to be too radical of a place. Um, we're not prone to do anything too radical changes. Likewise, there's never been a ton of trust in the federal government as a whole. It could be argued that this post-war period, wherever you have this rather high idealism of post-war liberalism is a bit of a, um, it's not the norm in American history. Generally, people have not been too trusting of the federal government, and that's what Reagan's really able to tap into to fuel his election. If you go over one, you'll see Reagan's um, first campaign. Uh, you know, there he is, Reagan for president. Uh, notice the slogan, let's make America great again. That Slogan should sound very familiar if you keep in touch with modern-day politics. Yes, Trump pretty much, um, let's go with borrowed, uh, Reagan's campaign slogan pretty much wholesale. Now, I've mentioned Reagan more than a few times in the past in this class. Um, he's, he's kind of been a peripheral figure. Let me go a little bit more to his background. Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see a production shot. I think it's kind of funny, Reagan holding an axe like that. Uh, Ronald Reagan is an actor by profession. Uh, he starts acting in the 40s and 50s. Uh, he's never the biggest star. Um, he's consistent. He's always working. Uh, never an A-lister. Um, he does have some decent movies that he's very well known for. He does a lot of cowboy acting. Uh, he's in George Gipp, uh, Win One for the Gipper. That's, that's one about Notre Dame football. Probably the one I find most amusing, if you go over one slide, is Bedtime for Bonzo, which is pretty much uh, Ronald Reagan acting with a chimpanzee. Uh, good old Bedtime for Bonzo. Uh, he realizes fairly early on that he's never going to become like an A-list star. He's never going to become like a, a Clark Gable or a Cary Grant or a John Wayne. 
Um, people nowadays might compare, you know, oh yeah, Reagan was a cowboy actor like John Wayne. No, uh, Reagan was nowhere near the level of John Wayne. Um, I'm, I've always tried to think of a modern day comparison to uh, Reagan in the acting world. Like he's not a George Clooney. He's not a Dwayne Johnson rock type of individual. He's somebody that like you would know him if you saw him, but he, not a character actor. Like he, he would lead movies, but they weren't like the best movies. Like, God, I'm I'm really struggling to think of somebody that's comparable to uh, maybe Robert Pattinson. No, he actually leads movies and people care about him, and he's kind of a sex symbol. Reagan was never a sex symbol. Anyway, enough about that. Maybe leave one in your comments in the forum, like, "Hey, this is this is an actor I think is comparable to Reagan." You know, what? maybe I'll make that a question. You know what? I think I will. It's April Fool's Day. Maybe I'll give y'all some points for that. All right, I'm back. I, I literally did just add that to the forum. So anyway. Uh, all right, so that's enough about Reagan's uh, acting background. What Reagan does do fairly early is he realizes that he's not going to become the biggest actor in of himself, so he really gets more involved with the politics of it. Uh, he becomes president of the Screen Actors Guild for, for quite a while in the 50s. Uh, during the McCarthy, uh, you know, communist hearings, he names names most famously. Uh, he had never been overtly political. Uh, for instance, during uh, the Great Depression, he had supported uh, FDR. He was a cold. He was a New Deal Democrat, not a Cold War Democrat. He was a New Deal Democrat. Uh, however, as time goes on, he gets uh, more conservative, uh, primarily in terms of taxes. Once he starts making like money, money, he gets a little annoyed with the amount of taxes that he has to pay, and he feels like it's not really going for anything well. And I, I should mention, like, in Hollywood, um, even to this day, it's being conservative in Hollywood is not the majority of the Hollywood population. Uh, Hollywood tends to be a little bit liberal. That's still the case in this time period. Now, what really puts Reagan on the map, if you go over one more, is a speech he gives in 1964 at the Republican National Convention. Uh, he is not the candidate. Uh, he is still just an actor. He's mainly, people know him as an actor, even though he hasn't acted that much in this time period. Um, he gives a speech for Goldwater in 64, which is a major watershed moment in American conservatism. Uh, basically, in the speech, he, he I'd recommend reading the speech. I don't have it listed, but it's not that hard to find. He basically says, you know, taxes are too high and that America is being led by the elite. And he's like, you know, America's at a, at a crossroads. America has a choice. Do you trust yourselves to set your own affairs, or do you trust, uh, you know, an absentee Washington elite to make your decisions for you? America has to recapture what it had lost. It, it, it's kind of this idea, this this kind of almost a revival spirit, almost a predecessor of this "Make America Great Again" idea. Like America was once good, <clears throat> we gave it up. You know, we're, we're just paying too much taxes. I think in the speech he says, like, you know, we're paying thirty-seven percent of our money and taxes, what's, what's the point of that? 37 cents of every dollar, you know, are, what are we getting for those 37 cents, that type of thing. Uh, this is one of the few bright spots. Remember, Goldwater had run a very conservative, to the point of being viewed as lunacy, campaign. Uh, Goldwater doesn't look good after this, but Reagan does. This is what gives Reagan his boost. Uh, pretty much this puts Reagan on the map. It's what lets him become governor of California in 66. And as the 60s and 70s go on, Reagan becomes kind of the top of the conservative wish list. 
Remember, the Republican Party is, even though it's more conservative than the Democrat Party, it's not like hardcore, capital case C, conservative. Um, Reagan is embodying the more conservative wing of the party. Um, you know, he refer, reaffirms things like lower taxes, wants to cut social programs. Uh, you know, he doesn't originate the term welfare queen. That's, uh, that's actually George Wallace who does that. And then Nixon gets on that, but, you know, Reagan talks a lot about welfare queens, so so to speak. He becomes the wish candidate for many elections, uh, particularly in 1976. He almost gets the nomination. Uh, Gerald Ford actually had a pretty tough challenge, even though he was the incumbent, from Ronald Reagan in 1976. Uh, but Ford does indeed get it due to incumbency, and it's interesting because of this time period, Reagan is 65. And the assumption is, you know, maybe Reagan is going to retire. He's, he's getting old. He's too old to be president. And he gives a speech in 76 at the Republican National Convention again, which is actually unusual because, you know, he had been a primary challenger. But he's able to give one of the last speeches. And then he says, like, you know, my wife Nancy and I, we're, we're not going to just retire to a beach chair. Oh, I should mention that. Uh, his wife in this time period is Nancy Reagan. That's actually his second wife. Uh, Reagan is the first president to have been divorced and remarried as president. Um, the second is our current occupant of the White House. And without getting too political, there is some overlap between Trump and Reagan, which we're going to get into. But his his speech that he gives in, in 1976, which reaffirms that he's He's not retiring. Makes a lot of Republicans think maybe we've nominated the wrong guy. You know, Reagan is a Washington outsider. That's one thing he talks about a lot is just we need to get rid of Washington. Uh, Washington is corrupt. Washington's got all these cronies. Uh, I hate to use the term drain the swamp because that's more of a modern day Trump thing. But that's kind of the same sentiment. The idea that, you know, Washington is corrupt and we need to get things out of there. Now, Reagan, for his faults... Uh, Reagan is indeed an amazing speaker. He's one of his uh, most common nicknames is the great communicator. And if you look at Reagan, if you if you listen to Reagan's speeches, you're going to be listening to some of Reagan's speeches. And by the way, he has some amazing speechwriters. But Reagan's speeches are really, really strongly done. Um, whether or not he believes what he's saying can be problematic. But it is clearly demonstrative that Ronald Reagan is really good at speaking. Um, if you hear people who like Reagan talk about Reagan, you're going to hear the phrase, you know, he, he looked and sounded presidential. He had gravitas. Um, there's a quote, and you're going to read it in Gaddis, that Reagan was, um, he was an actor by trade, and the greatest role he ever played was President of the United States. He acted a certain way as president, whereas his actions may not have been in compliance. Uh, he definitely talked the talk. Did he walk the walk? That's something that is up for uh, debate. So in 1980, it's looking that Reagan is, is pretty much on his way to the Republican nomination. He does have a fairly strong challenge early on, and if you go over one slide, George H.W. Bush. Uh, George H.W. Bush, he's a career cold warrior. He's more centrist. Uh, Reagan is viewed as too far to the right. There's fears that maybe Reagan can't become president because he is so conservative. Uh, George H.W. Bush, career cold warrior. He's been ambassador all over the place. He's been in the House. 
He's been director of the CIA. Um, he is kind of the prototypical Washington insider. Uh, most people run for president claiming to be they are Washington outsiders. Uh, Bush, who does eventually become president, is the definition of a Washington insider. He is a swamp creature, if you will. And it is a fairly close um, primary. It's a fairly close primary, but, however, Reagan does ultimately get it. Even though he is older, he's in his late 60s by this point. Um, and he makes Bush his vice president, makes him his running mate. Um, Reagan actually has a fairly easy road to the White House since Carter is dealing with a lot of stuff. Uh, primarily the economy. Uh, Republicans come up with a new term, which they call the misery index, which is a sum of inflation plus unemployment. And now the, this misery index gets touted all the time by Republicans. This idea that this shows how miserable things are in the country. It gets as high as 22%. Uh, so basically the sum of inflation and unemployment during Carter's last term in 19, well, 19, early 1980 is 22%. Now, a word about the economy and presidents. Um, the economy is something that presidents get too much credit for when it's going well and too much blame whenever it's going bad. Uh, a president really can't take credit or blame for a good or bad economy. It's, uh, it's just one of those facts of life. However, if the economy is not doing well, it really doesn't help the president. But what really hurts Carter is not the economy. The economy sure as hell doesn't help, though. Uh, it's the Iran crisis. Pretty much the entirety of 1980 is, uh, not Ronald Reagan, is Jimmy Carter dealing with the Iran crisis, uh, trying to get the hostages out. We mentioned, you know, he had that plane, the helicopter crash. Uh, Carter says early on that he's not going to campaign. He's not going to leave the White House or really do much of anything until the hostages are freed. Now, R Carter doesn't know this, but this pretty much puts him in the White House for about a year. Uh, he does do some campaigning from the White House. He does what's called the Rose Garden Campaign, which is basically he doesn't really go anywhere and do campaign events. He just lets the White House be his backdrop. Uh, this could be an effective campaign uh, technique in, a, in an ordinary year. Had it not been for the Iran crisis and the uh, economy being so bad, I really think this could work. Um, it worked very well for William McKinley when he did his front porch campaign. He wasn't president at that time period. But he pretty much campaigned for the White House, pretty much never leaving his front porch in Ohio. I, I think this could theoretically work. I mean, I'm, I'm a historian, not a political scientist, and I'm not getting political. But I think a president could do a, run a very effective campaign if they were to just stay at the White House and just let that be the backdrop. Um, I don't think Trump's going to do that. I mean, he might have to do that because of coronavirus, but, I mean, I, I don't think I'm being overly political if I say Trump's natural home is those campaign rallies. Uh, now, Reagan's campaign slogan, as I said, is let's make America great again. Uh, the other slogans he uses are two questions. It's, are you better off than you were four years ago? Which he actually uses again in his re-election in 84, which it's like, yeah, I'm doing a lot better in 84 than I was in 80. But he really pins it all on Carter. You know, the economy is doing bad. Now, that's not necessarily Carter's fault because, you know, there's international elements going through. The U.S. and manufacturing and Japan and stuff, they're all developing. That's really not Carter's fault. Really not anybody's fault. 
Uh, the one that really resonates a bit more is Reagan's other question. Is America more respected throughout the world than it was four years ago? And that one, he could easily point to the hostage crisis. He could easily go, hey, you know, look at these nobodies in Iran. I mean, no offense to the, to the revolutionaries of Iran, but they're really not the strongest. Uh, they're not exactly a Soviet puppet state. They're really defying American authority off and on all the time. And it's incredibly effective. Uh, I don't have an electoral college map, but I do want you to know that Reagan gets huge numbers. Uh, his re-election is even bigger numbers. He gets the popular vote and the electoral college vote is really good. His electoral college numbers are not as good as Nixon gets uh, either time, but it's, it's, it's pretty big. And it shows that America is sticking with conservatives and uh, anti-big government messages. It's working. And it's also demonstrated that the Republicans have done a very good job of distancing themselves from Watergate. Now, if you go over one slide, you'll see that Reagan is able to win by making a very unusual alliance between very different groups. Reagan's coalition is something which hadn't been seen before in American politics and actually is very important because it makes up the bulk of the Republican Party base to this day. Uh, the first group is evangelicals. Uh, evangelicals have become a major block for the first time. Now, I probably mentioned this in the class during the 50s, but America has been a Christian-ish country for a while. I would not say we're a Christian country. That, that's a loaded term, if ever. But America does indeed tend to be Christian, tend, does, intend to be, does indeed tend to be religious. Um, you know, church service, particularly in the 50s, and its heights it ever was. Uh, it was, I wouldn't say it was a political or partisan. Um, going to church was something seen as something both parties did. Um, you know, it wasn't unusual, like, for instance, around the 4th of July, maybe to sing, like, a few hymns in church that are, you know, American, like, God Bless America or America the Beautiful, maybe the Star Circle Banner, or to have an American flag up in a church. That's not too unusual. Uh, it's not unusual for politicians to go to churches uh, not really talk too much about, you know, how their religion informs their politics, but just talk about, like, you know, civic duty or how, uh, you know, God loves America. Kind of basic, I don't want to say harmless stuff, but, you know, just yeah, kind of innocuous stuff. Uh, this changes in the late 70s, early 80s. There's a new group coined called the Moral Majority. Uh, it's coined by Jerry Falwell, seen on the left. Uh, Jerry Falwell is much more partisan than religious groups have been in the past. Uh, the more majority, he claims, is the majority of Americans, kind of like the silent majority that Nixon talks about. He's, uh, uh, Jerry Falwell says the majority of Americans are good, honest, Christian, hardworking people, and they are just disturbed by what they're seeing in society. You know, they're disturbed by the sex and violence in movies, they're disturbed by abortion. They're disturbed by, you know, the sexuality of the women's movement. They're disturbed by the hippies. They're not out there campaigning. They're not out there, um, you know, in the streets. They're busy going to church, you know, doing doing the good Lord's work. Uh, he and Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson is another guy you might want to know about. He's actually still around. He's on the 700 Club. Um, 700 Club is that thing that comes on Freeform, like, every night. And you're like, oh, okay, we're not watching, um, you know, 
10 Things I Hate About You or whatever is on Freeform nowadays, Teen Werewolves or what have you. It's the 700 Club, so we're going to change the channel for an hour and we're going to put on something else. Uh, Pat Robertson is a son of a conservative Democrat uh, senator from Virginia. Uh, his dad was a senator from Virginia. Uh, he kind of switches parties to the more Republican Party. Uh, they're the vanguards of making Reagan like this evangelical hero. Um, American Christianity, I could do a long series on that, and I probably should one of these days. Maybe I'll make a class about it, because it's fascinating just how Christianity has really played a part, and not, not just on the religious side, but like in a societal and uh, political how manifestations of Christianity have influenced the U.S. development. And this is no, uh, this is no exception. Now, the, the evangelicals, they are strongly, strongly political. I'd say that's probably the main difference between them and earlier forms of Christianity. What they believe theologically is not that different. Uh, there is some change in language. Uh, for instance, uh, the idea of becoming born again, that, that kind of enters into America vernacular for the first time. Uh, the idea of having an, a conversion experience be very, very central to your uh, development. That's not too unusual. I mean, you've had that throughout America for a long time. Uh, I mean, that's a big thing for Martin Luther even with uh, the Protestant Reformation back in, you know, oh, 500 years ago or whatever it was. But... Um, their theology is not that different than what's come before. What is different is their politics. And this is not to say that religion wasn't political. It wasn't super political. It was more rah-rah, hooray America, you know, be a good citizen is being a good Christian. Now evangelicals are starting to mobilize. This is not all evangelicals, but pretty much everybody involved in these movements are indeed evangelicals. Now, why do they become more political? That is the interesting question. Uh, there's been a lot of research done about it. Now, if you're to ask an evangelical, if you're to go to an evangelical church or ask an evangelical pastor or something, uh, if you're to ask Jerry Falwell or, well, you can't ask Jerry Falwell because he, he passed away, but maybe Jerry Falwell Jr., who's still around. Um, Actually, Jerry Falwell Jr. is a bad person to ask because he's not exactly a pastor. He's, uh, shoot, okay, let me focus on one thing than the other. Uh, what gets them involved? They would tell you abortion. Uh, they would say Roe v. Wade is what really mobilizes support for the evangelical movement. Uh, that might indeed be the case. That could possibly be the case. Uh, that's really not shown in most mainland denomina mainline denominations, uh, aside from Catholicism. Catholicism has indeed been against abortion pretty much since the beginning. But for instance, even the Southern Baptist Convention, which tends to be very Protestant, very right-wing, I would argue that a lot of them are evangelical. Even in 1975, which is two years after Roe v. Wade, the stance of the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, abortion's okay, you know, we, we're all right with it. Uh, the other issue, which is more controversial and might get you some raised eyebrows, I'm, I'm not taking one side or the other on this, I'm just saying mobilization actually has to do with desegregation. Uh, desegregation of schools really does seem to upset a lot of evangelicals. I wouldn't call them racist outright, but there are racial matters. Uh, evangelicals have a very long and weird history with evangelical with a uh, with 
African-American rights and desegregation. Uh, they, a lot of these, you know, schools that come up are seemingly to prevent uh, interracial stuff. For instance, Bob Jones University, which comes about in this time period, it's strong evangelical. They outlaw interracial relationships, I believe, to this day. Um, maybe not to this day, but I know recently. I know as of 10 years ago, you, you could not have interracial relationships at Bob Jones University. But they're also pretty strict when it comes to, like, gender stuff. Like, they have sidewalks for men and women that are separate, and you can't hold hands, stuff like that. Now, Jerry Falwell, I should mention, does uh, start Liberty University, which is a major university. It's pretty much the darling of uh, conservatism. That's a main hot spot for conservatives to go in this time period and, and nowadays. Now, what's interesting about evangelicals in this time is that Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson champion Ronald Reagan as, like, the champion of Christian values, which is weird. Um, Reagan himself is, by all accounts, a-religious. He, he doesn't really go to church. He's not a very pious guy. He doesn't really seem to have religion be too much of a centerpiece in his life. I mean, he'll give lip service to the, uh, to the pastors and whatnot, but it doesn't seem that he's too deeply entrenched in religion. Now, this is in contrast to Jimmy Carter, who is a hardcore, pious, devout, born-again Christian. He is super pious. He is, I mean, to this day, I've mentioned before, you can go to his Sunday school class and um, that he gives every Sunday and, you know, listen to him and get a selfie with him. And it's interesting that Carter is not the darling of evangelicals. He, he was kind of in 1976... But by 1980, pretty much everybody who's evangelical votes for Reagan, even though he really doesn't share their beliefs. But it's because he shares their politics. Now, that's a, that's a smaller group. You do need to know about this. Um, they become kind of a major force later on. Uh, actually, they're a fairly major force. The other part of Reagan's weird coalition is Southerners. If you go over one more, you'll see Reagan giving a speech at the Neshoba County Fair, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, Reagan is effectively to use Nixon's Southern strategy way more effectively than Nixon was ever able to. Um, part of this is that Reagan is simply a better communicator than Nixon. Uh, Nixon has never been a great speech giver. Uh, Reagan was. Reagan was a very good speech giver. Reagan could deliver. Reagan was comfortable with crowds. Uh, Reagan never seemed to, you know, disheveled by it. Uh, the other part of it has to do with just the growth of, growth of the South. I, I briefly alluded to it in, uh, in Carter, but the South is going through an economic boom time. Uh, even though the country as a whole is going through recession, that's in places like the Rust Belt with manufacturing leaving. A lot of that manufacturing is going to the South. Um, the South has never had a very strong union house, union, uh, union presence. And so companies are able to pay workers less and their dollar goes further in the South. The South is growing economically. It, it seems to be coming around almost for the first time. And it's, it's becoming, you know, yes, they, the Southern politicians, the old Democrats do feel betrayed by the Republican Party, the Democratic Party. And this is where you start having the so-called switch, mainly in the constituency. Okay, most Democratic uh, politicians from the South don't switch parties. But the people who vote for them do kind of switch over to the Republican Party, and Reagan is a major part of it. 
Reagan is the reason why large portions of the South go Republican and stay Republican. It's the legacy of Reagan. Now, this speech in Neshoba County is pretty interesting. You're going to be reading part of it. And I want you to really focus upon what he says about states' rights. Reagan is rarely, if ever, says anything bad about African Americans outright. He never says anything overtly racist. But he does talk about welfare queens. He talks about corruption in the cities. He talks about, like, you know, unqualified people. And is this coded racial language? I'm not going there. But when he says things like, I'm for states' rights, smaller government, it's giving authority back to the southern states, which is seen as something good because it's viewed as the federal government is screwing up everything. Now, why is Neshoba County uh, such an interesting place for him to be giving this speech? Well, as you can see, it's in Philadelphia, Mississippi. This is where the three civil rights workers went missing in Freedom Summer. Not even 20 years before. 16 years before, this is where these people went missing. And now Reagan has come back, only 16 years later, to say, I am for states' rights. I am for states organizing their own affairs. And it has a lot of resonance in a place like Philadelphia, because remember, like in the Freedom Summer book, they're dealing with a lot of backlash and just fallout of the civil rights movement. There's still a lot of resentment. And Reagan is able to become president mainly because of driving together this coalition, which is still to this day the major, major coalition that makes up the Republican Party. Um, I'm not telling tales out of school. I don't think anybody would be offended. Um, I know I don't get very political in this class, and I stay apolitical, but I don't think I'd be upsetting to anybody if I say that Southerners and Evangelicals make up a lot of the Republican Party. And they're the, some of the most stoward Republican voting individuals. And Reagan's the reason why. Reagan is still to this day a darling of a lot of conservatives. Uh, he's seen as the ideal for many conservatives. Uh, to this day, Reagan is seen as kind of the, the apex of what conservatism should be. Now, it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, with the legacy of Trump once Trump is out of office. Um... Trump is probably the closest we've gotten to Reagan for just like a right-wing, conservative, populist figure. Uh, both Bushes were not as popular as Reagan were, and as, as heralded as Reagan were, was. It'll be interesting to see what Trump's legacy is like later on. But let's move on. Uh, Reagan is inaugurated. Reagan is indeed inaugurated about two weeks before his 70th birthday, which makes him the oldest incoming president in U.S. history. Um... He remains the oldest incoming U.S. president until now, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is older than Reagan. Now, some people are worried about his age because he is old. And they're also worried about his life. Um, weird thing, since 1840, every president who's been elected in a year divisible by 20 has died, either by disease or by assassination. And this does seem to happen to Ronald Reagan in the March of 1981. So two months after he is elected president, Reagan is shot. And he's shot very bad. Um, he is shot worse than James Garfield or uh, William McKinley. Uh, the bullet is only inches away from Reagan's heart. Reagan very, very could have easily died. Uh, he is shot, if you go over one more slide, by John Hinckley. Uh, John Hinckley is a loser. I... Don't think I'm telling tales out of school if I say that John Hinckley's a loser. He was. He was in his late 20s, never really did anything. Uh, he was obsessed with Jodie Foster. 
Uh, Jodie Foster, the actress, who this time is very young. Jodie Foster, like a lot of other Hollywood people, don't like Reagan. They don't think he's going to be a very good president. They think he's just a stuffed shirt, just a populist figure. Uh, he's just saying whatever the country wants to hear. He's He won't inherently be a good president. And uh, that really, I mean, none of this is Jodie Foster's fault. It's all John Hinckley's fault because he was obsessed with Jodie Foster. Uh, he watched her one of her movies, Taxi Driver. That's actually a Robert Nero movie, wherever she's the... Uh, she's like 14. She's super young in this movie. And she I think she plays not exactly the love interest of Robert De Niro, because that's icky, but like the person that Robert De Niro is trying to protect. Uh, Hinckley is indeed obsessed with this movie. He like shaves his head, and he has this delusion that he's going to impress Jodie Foster by killing... Ronald Reagan, he wrote Jodie Foster, like, tons of letters. Um, it, it's disturbing. You could read some of them. Like, he, he's obsessed with Jodie Foster. She's very young in this time period, too, I should mention. Not 12, not 12. She's not that young, but she ain't that much older. Anyway, uh, Hinckley does shoot Reagan. He is put in jail. Uh, you know, attempted murder, reason of insanity. You try to kill the president by reason of insanity. Uh, Hinckley actually recently has been let out of prison, and he's um, hanging out in Williamsburg, Virginia, which I've been to. Actually, go to Williamsburg, it's cool, but I was kind of creeped out afterward. I was like, oh, John Hinckley's hanging out there, so, ick. Uh, Reagan does indeed recover pretty well, though. Um, he actually does recover. He's doing fine. Kind of generates some sympathy for, for Reagan. Uh, his oration skills are pretty are becoming pretty seen. Uh, for instance, his inauguration address, uh, which you will read, is actually pretty impressive. He talks about the challenges of America and the sacrifices that need to be made. And unlike Nixon, who po who is painting a very bleak picture of America, Reagan's weirdly hopeful. Reagan's like, yeah, we're going through a lot of tough times. The economy's bad. You know, Cold War's pretty scary, but we can come through it. He's able to communicate that a lot more effectively than Reagan even is, uh, than Nixon ever was. And to make things even better, uh, during Nixon's, during Reagan's inauguration address, Iran releases the hostages, um, pretty much as a final middle finger to to Ronald uh, to, to to Carter. Uh, they release the hostages, and this gives Reagan the ability to look very tough. Reagan is able to look very tough. He's able to look uh, strong internationally, and able to bring out like a new pressure, a new type of language of the Cold War. Because Reagan's usage of the Cold War is completely different. The language that Reagan uses in the Cold War, totally different than anybody had done before. Uh, Reagan refers to the Soviets as evil. Uh, if I were to just talk about Reagan on moral, basically how Reagan views the Cold War, it's clearly on moral grounds. He says straight up, the Soviets are evil. He uses the term the evil empire. He says the U.S. is good. And now that he's talking about the Cold War in terms of morality, it's changed things quite a bit. Um, you know, Truman never talked about it that way. Eisenhower certainly never did. No other president, even Nixon, who, you know, he's, a, he's the hardcore Cold Warrior, Mr. Anti-Communist, he never called the Soviets or the Chinese evil. He said they're our adversary. He said that they were somebody we need to work with in detente. But he's talking about it in terms of morality. Now, to defeat evil, Reagan presses Congress to spend a lot more money on the military. Uh, military spending had been cut uh, fairly steadily since Vietnam. 
And Reagan wants to start building up the military a lot. He increases the Pentagon's budget by a bunch. They start building all sorts of new ships, new weapons. Um, the stealth bomber is probably the most famous that comes out of this. Yeah, it's all this new equipment. The centerpiece, though, is what he calls the Strategic Defense Initiative. Go over one. Better known as Star Wars. It is to be a space-based missile system that could, sh- or laser system, that could shoot down lasers and missiles out of the sky. I'm sorry, let me, let me repeat that. Star Wars, it's a space-based, like, laser missile defense system that could shoot intercontinental ballistic missiles out of the sky. Which, by the way, there's no way that could be done. Um, that was just a fantasy. Even, even today... We can't do that. We can shoot missiles out of the sky with missiles, but using lasers, that doesn't happen. Now, the problem with Star Wars, the problems with the Strategic Defense Initiative, is that it's that Reagan is assuming that the Russians are suicidal. Because, con- okay, this is not to say that Russia was not a scary threat. They were. But America had a ton more nuclear missiles than the Russians did. And pretty much the defense for the U.S. was, hey, any country would be stupid to try to attack us because we would be able to retaliate way more than they ever would be able to. And so this kind of mutually assured destruction, or just the fact that America could retaliate more, was the main deterrent. But Reagan is assuming the Russians are going to attack anyway. The fact that the Russians are going to be wiped out won't stop them from attacking. He assumes that the Russians have a death wish, which um, there is no evidence to support this. And Reagan's understanding of the military as a whole is fairly problematic. He doesn't understand some things. He'll, st- he'll say things about the military, about the Russian threat, and they're not actually based in reality. Uh, it do- it's not if he has a lack of understanding, or maybe he just doesn't know. Uh, probably the most famous instance of this is uh, he's giving a speech to Congress. He's, he's giving a meeting to Congress. And he mentions to Congress that submarines and airplanes don't carry nuclear missiles, which is false. Um, submarines most certainly carry nuclear missiles. Uh, they can. Nuclear submarines can. And airplanes definitely can carry nuclear bombs uh, because we use them. I don't know if Reagan forgot we used nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they are most definitely from airplane bombers. Now, we didn't use them as much in the 80s, but we still definitely had the B-52s. I mean, Barksdale Air Force Base in Bossier City most definitely had bombers equipped with nuclear weapons. I mean, that was part of our retaliation thing, was we will use bombers on them. Yes, we do have some missiles, but uh, bombers still existed. Same thing with submarines. And, and, And Reagan is called out almost immediately by this by Congress. Even his own military is like, yeah, that's not accurate. But the thing you need to realize about Reagan, and something you'll probably be, you know, I want y'all to write about a little bit, is kind of this disconnect between what he says and reality. But it almost doesn't matter. Because Reagan is able to talk tough. And it resonates throughout the country. Remember, most Americans don't know that much about nuclear weapons. And, you know, if Reagan's confused about nuclear weapons, well, most of the country's confused about nuclear weapons. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know all that much about nuclear weapons. If you ask me, hey, Telly, what's our nuclear capability? I'd be like, you know what? I really don't know off the top of my head. And so maybe that's the type of person Reagan was. But the main thing about Reagan in Cold War is that he changes the total tone of the Cold War. 
Although his language might cause Russia to build more bombs, which, by the way, Russia does build more bombs, it, it is viewed as America as the tougher country. Now, it's interesting because Russia doesn't build up all that long because of what ultimately happens in 85 with Gorbachev. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Now, the other issue with this is that Reagan is spending so much money, he's putting it into a deficit. Uh, for a country, you know, for a party, for an individual who claims to be low taxes, low, you know, small government, low government spending, he is spending more money than the government has on military preparedness. Now he says it's warranted because we need to beat the, the, uh, the, the, the communist, but it's still problematic. So if you go over more, you will see the only good tax. We're going to talk about Reagan and the economy. Uh, Reagan is a big fan of what's called supply-side economics, uh, which we better known as Reagan economics, or trickle-down economics, whatever you want to call it. Basically, he says we need to slash taxes. Slash taxes on the rich. Uh, they're going to be more included to make businesses, pay their workers more, etc. If they're not paying taxes, they'll invest it in the American economy. Uh, supporters of this policy believe that cutting taxes would actually raise federal revenue because people would be inclined to work more and make more businesses. Uh, the idea behind making tax cuts grow the American economy, uh, the best way I could equate it is with a pizza. All right? I want you to imagine a pizza. All right? Imagine a, I don't know, a nice 10-inch pizza. All right? Cut into quarters. All right? Reagan says we shouldn't be giving the government a bigger cut of the pizza we should make smaller. We should make a bigger pizza and give a smaller slice, but we're getting more pizza. If that makes any sense. Uh, for instance, like one sixteen-inch pizza has double the pizza of two twelve-inch pizzas, just because of the way that circumferences and radiuses. And I'm not good at math works, but the surface area of a sixteen-inch pizza is bigger than two twelve-inch pizzas or ten-inch pizzas. Actually, it's ten-inch pizzas, not twelve-inch pizzas. And that's what Reagan's dealing with. Reagan says, if we cut taxes, we will grow the economy, and the government is actually going to get more money by cutting taxes. Does this work? That is debatable. I am not an economist. Um, <laughs> economists are still arguing to this day if that's the best way to raise revenue, is to have like bigger, higher taxes, or just grow the economy. But what isn't deniable is that when Reagan does his tax cuts, it does not work in the short term. Uh, in the short term, unemployment goes into double digits, and a serious recession happens in 1982. Uh, it's a very bad recession. In 1982, interest rates go super high, like crazy high. I remember my, uh, my grandmother, during, the, during 82, she bought a CD from the bank, uh, just a certificate of deposit, Interest rates were so high during this recession and banks were so desperate for money, she was able to get 19% interest on a CD. 19%. The best CDs I've seen nowadays in banks around here are about a percent. And my brother, my grandmother got 19%. And she was able to renew it for decades. Like, I'm sorry, if I was getting 19% interest on anything, I would do nothing but that. Now, when this recession happens, Reagan blames us all on Carter. And Reagan blames us on other factors, too. He says it's not his fault, even though he's been president for a couple of years. Uh, 
Reagan also doesn't seem to understand how the Federal Reserve works. Uh, there's a famous story early on. Reverend Reagan asked the head of the Federal Reserve, why do we need the Federal Reserve? Can we get rid of it? And basically, you know, the chair of the Federal Reserve is like, this is petrifying. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve is important. It, it stops us from having like another Great Depression whenever um, the stock market takes a tumble. Reagan never seems to have the greatest grasp on the economy as a whole. Um, Reagan tends to simplify issues. Uh, that can be a good thing. You know, Re Reagan would say things like, you know, we, we don't, our problems aren't that hard. They're simple answers to them. They might be hard, but they're simple. You know, he's like, we're going to do, we're going to do the tough things. You know, we need to cut taxes. It's going to be good for the country. Uh, it does have more nuance. Reagan tends not to have more nuance. Now, to be fair to Reagan, finances are pretty complicated. And also to be fair to Reagan, the economy does indeed get better in 1983, uh, it does very well throughout the rest of Reagan's presidency. The problem is the federal government is less solvent. Even, even though the economy is doing well, uh, Reagan is spending a ton of money. Even though he says he is Mr. Small Government, he is Mr. You know, less Government, uh, they, the federal government is running deficits. They're running huge deficits. And Reagan says, you know what, the way to get rid of a deficit is to cut our expenses. He believes in deregulation. He believes that the federal government has too many people working for it. He does this fairly on in 1981, wherever the aircraft, uh, the federal air traffic controllers, air traffic controllers are on strike. The biggest air traffic controller union goes on strike. And here's a funny thing. This union actually donated money to Reagan's campaign. Uh, Reagan claimed not to be a big fan of unions. However, you know, air traffic is something regulated by the federal government. Air traffic is something highly regulated, uh, probably for the best, too. Uh, they think they're on safe ground. You know, they have donated money to Reagan. It seems that everything's doing okay. Um, Reagan actually fires them. He claims they're federal government employees and they are not needed. He fires them in 1981. This stuns everybody. Uh, there is actually a small uptick in uh, airplane crashes after this because uh, they're trying to train new air traffic controllers. Uh, this is a stunning move, even for somebody who talks about small government quite a bit. He's a big fan of privatization, not one of conservationism. Um, it's interesting because the term conservative means to save resources. Uh, if you think of somebody like uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he's a famous conservative. He's the guy behind the national parks. The idea that, you know, we need to conserve our resources, hold it back. Uh, this seems to be a new type of conservative. Uh, probably best demonstrated by James Watt. Go over one slide, you'll see James Watt, who is the Secretary of the Interior. Um, the Secretary of the Interior is a person in charge of, like, national parks, basically, you know, federal land, things like that. Um, Watt is from Wyoming, which is a western state, a fairly heavily federal land. He does not believe the federal government should have that much private land. He does not believe that the federal government should have that much, uh, you know, national parks and stuff like that. For instance, whenever James Watt went to the Grand Canyon, he said it was boring. He said the entire time uh, he was there, he was praying for a helicopter. He was like, you know, it was the most boring place to go. There was nothing there, which... He and I differ on that. I've been to the Grand Canyon. It's gorgeous. I'd recommend you go. Uh, likewise, when it comes to federally protected land, James Watt says that 
he was going to, they were going to mine more, drill more, and cut up more timber on federal land. Let private companies do that. That is uh, different. <laughs> Remember, the Teapot Dome scandal ha- uh, you know, ruined the presidency of James, uh, you know, of uh, not James Harden, Warren G. Harding, because of uh, the idea that they're going to drill oil on federal land. That actually ruined his Secretary of the Interior. And now Reagan's Secretary of the Interior is saying something similar. Uh, James Watt also said that conservationism was pointless. He was a, uh, he was, he believed that Jesus was going to return very quickly. And he's like, what's the point of, of conserving all these natural resources? Jesus is going to come back before we're able to use them all up. Uh, he is a problematic figure. He is ultimately let go whenever he says some fairly offensive things about affirmative action, which I'm not going to say, but you can Google that. Uh, Reagan himself is not big on conservationism. For instance, he most famously says, a tree is a tree, how many more do you need to look at? Whenever, uh, when he was governor of California and they were trying to preserve the California redwoods. Uh, He also said things like trees cause air pollution, which I I don't know where Reagan's coming with on that one, but okay. Now, to be fair, there is some benefit to deregulation. Uh, For instance, air travel becomes much cheaper. By deregulating part of the airlines, the price of tickets gets way cheaper. Uh, in addition, by um, deregulating shipping, companies like FedEx and UPS are able to ship stuff across the country way cheaper and way faster than the U.S. Postal Service does. So there's some pluses and minuses with privatization. Now, despite his bluster, which was considerable, uh, Reagan... Reagan could actually be fairly non-confrontational when it came to dealing directly with the Russians. Uh, For instance, in Poland, uh, Poland started having the Solidarity Movement. It was a pro-democracy movement. Um, You have uh, Lech Walisa right there. He he later becomes uh, president of Poland. Uh, He starts one of the first labor unions in Poland, seemingly to go against the communist uh, dictators, who are pretty much Soviet puppets. Uh, Reagan talks a lot about supporting Poland, but when it comes down to it, he starts putting things that punish the Polish government instead of the Soviets. Um, you know, he, he does things which are seemingly against those who are going against the Russians, weirdly enough. You know, he, he rarely does things directly against the Russians. Uh, another instance when he does something like this is in Afghanistan. If you go down one, you'll see Reagan meeting with the Mujahideen. Uh, they are freedom fighters, quote-unquote. They are those who are fighting against the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan. Reagan supports them with uh, supplies, uh, weapons, things like that. Uh, they're fighting against the Russians. He claims they're they're good people. Uh, they're the various tribes and stuff around Afghanistan who are fighting against each other. They're not really a solidified movement, solidified u- movement by any case. Um, he does support them, gives gives them uh, gives them supplies and things like that. Uh, this is interesting because members of this, parts of this, later go on to become the Taliban, which. <laughs> yeah, the Taliban. So uh, we're going to give that one a, for Reagan a, a big old uh, question mark for that one, or just like a big old wince. How about that? But in general, Reagan 
Reagan kind of makes his own thing, which is which we kind of call the Reagan Doctrine. Um, it's not as well defined as something like the Truman Doctrine. Uh, it's never codified to a single speech. It's seemingly the inverse of the Truman Doctrine, though. Uh, for instance, Truman is supporting rightist regimes against leftist insurgencies, whereas Reagan is supporting rightist insurgencies against leftist regimes. The Truman Doctrine, we talk about domino theory. It's all about making sure the dominoes don't fall down. Keep the status quo at all costs. Reagan is about reversing the status quo. He wants to overthrow communist groups. Probably the one you need to know about, the most famous one we're going to talk about, is the Contras. This is in Nicaragua. Uh, Nicaragua has a communist government, and Reagan asked the CIA to raise up an army. Um, the Contras are this army. They're not American. They are people in Nicaragua who had already been fighting against the communists. The CIA gives them a lot of supplies. They use kind of dubious means to get aid to them. Uh, the American public is not directly um, aware of what all's going on. It's later going to kind of blow up in its face, but just know Reagan is starting to support this insurgency in Nicaragua. The Contras, uh, they start giving stuff to them. And I do need to mention it's 1984 in this time period. Um, it's not before, it's an election year. Reagan's having a pretty easy election. Uh, he is indeed starting to show his age. He's like 73, 74 in this time period. Uh, still, it's a fairly easy election. Um, Walter Mondale is a Democratic nominee. Uh, he commits the sin of saying, hey, whenever I become president, I'm going to raise taxes. Never do that. Anybody who's talking about running for office, never say you're going to raise taxes. Or if you do, just say you're going to raise it on rich people. Uh, Mondale says, I'm going to raise taxes on everybody, which does not go very well for obvious reasons. People don't like to vote for getting their taxes raised. Um, Walter Mondale does do something, which is, I don't want to say it's a publicity stunt, but it's not not a publicity stunt. Uh, he picks a woman to be his running mate, Geraldine Ferrero. She is the first woman uh, running mate for any major political party. Um, still, the economy's doing really good. Reagan's fairly well-liked. Uh, Reagan has a very big re-election. He gets 49 states. Even though he does not get uh, Nixon's uh, numbers, he still gets 49 states. That's a very impressive Electoral College victory. It really shows that liberalism is dead. We don't have, like, a liberal, liberal president for quite a while after this. You could even argue that we haven't had, like, a capital L liberal president since this time period. Uh, Bill Clinton, he could be argued to be the most successful Republican president of all time, even though he's a Democrat. He does a lot of things which Republicans like. Uh, Barack Obama, he's more centrist. I would not say that Obama was a liberal um, Biden is definitely running as a centrist now, and since then all we've had is Republican presidents. But if you look at the Electoral College map, you will see it's only Minnesota, which is Mondale's home state. Everything else goes for Reagan. So it's in Reagan's term that the extent of what's going on with the Contras comes out. And it becomes known as the Iran-Contra affair, which I think you have a little video about this. It's, uh, it's pretty bad. Basically, the Reagan administration is selling weapons to Iran, who is seemingly our enemy. And they're taking the money from the weapons and giving it to the Contras. 
Uh, the reason the Reagan administration is doing that is because anything to do with money has to go through Congress. Anything having to do with money has to go through Congress in the U.S. The president cannot decide anything with money in of himself. But if it has to do with military stuff, the president can do it because he's commander-in-chief. So they're selling military supplies to Iran, who's theoretically our enemy, and taking that money, which they just can't bring to the U.S. because there'd be a lot of questions about where their money came from, and giving it to the Contras. If that sounds very illegal, it is. It is super illegal. Uh, does this sound worse than Watergate? You know what? Yeah, I would say this is worse than Watergate. I'm not saying Watergate was good by any means. I'm just saying the idea that we're selling weapons to who's theoretically our enemy and then giving that money to somebody and not go, pretty much specifically to bypass Congress, that has problems. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Donald Trump got impeached for having a phone call where he said maybe he'd cut military aid to a country. Um, I would say this is worse than that. Okay, I would say this is significantly worse than that. Now, the problem is a lot of questions come up about what all is known in the uh, Reagan administration. What does Reagan know about this? Is Reagan behind this? Because if Reagan's behind this, that's impeachable. But if Reagan doesn't know about this, what control does he have over his, his own administration? Now, what ends up happening is uh, Colonel Oliver North, who you'll see there if you go over one slide, he kind of jumps on the bomb for this. Um, he, he says, everything is my fault. He shreds all the documents. He says, I did it. You can't prove that Reagan did anything. He actually goes to jail for this. He later gets out. Weirdly enough, he later becomes a contributor on Fox News and becomes president of the NRA, the National Rifle Association, for a while. Until like a year or two ago where he was kicked out because of this crazy thing with Wayne LaPierre. And it's just nuts! It's all this, all this crazy stuff going on. But that's Oliver North. He pretty much takes the blame for Iran-Contra. Uh, the implication is that maybe Reagan doesn't know too much about these affairs. Uh, Reagan is out to ask about this under oath. He says he can't recall. Uh, we don't know how much Reagan knew or how much Reagan didn't know about this. But that is Iran-Contra. It could have easily sunk any other presidency, but Reagan somehow is above it. Uh, I, I can't say why, it just seems to happen. That Reagan, I don't want to say he gets a pass, but it doesn't seem to have the implications that it would over somebody else. Maybe Reagan does a better job than Nixon of... Uh, keeping things quiet or keeping himself outside of the fray. Can't say one or the other. Now, the other individual I want you to know about is Mikhail Gorbachev. Go over. It takes two to tan tango, all right? When Reagan is saying all this stuff about Russia, he has to be talking about somebody. And uh, by 85, the new premier of Russia is Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, Russia has not had had that many premiers. Uh, since Stalin, you've only had... You had, Gor you had wait, you had Stalin... You had Khrushchev, you had What's-His-Face, you had Brezhnev, then there's a couple that haven't in a few years, and then you have Gorbachev. So you've had a bunch of U.S. presidents, you haven't had that many Russian premiers. And Gorbachev is of a different generation. He grew up under Stalin. He's the son of peasants. Um, he grew up really not liking Stalin's methods. He says Stalin is brutal. Um, and as head of the Soviets, he openly states that he doesn't want the form of communism that Stalin had. He says, uh, yeah, Stalin did a lot of brutal things, and we need to be better than that. If the Soviet Union is going to survive, we need to make changes. 
This is something that early in Soviet premieres have not said. Uh, Gorbachev is really big on restructuring. He really wants to really open himself and open up Russia up to something different. The two terms I want you to know are Glasnov and Perostika. Uh, go over one slide, you'll see them spelled out. Glasnov, uh, sorry, Glasnov means openness. He's allowing for freedom of speech, freedom of the press. He says we're oppressing and censoring too much in Russia. We need to be honest about our faults. Pyostokov means restructuring. He says our economy is bad. Uh, the Russians never had the best economy. I will say that straight up. Economically, Russia always lagged behind the United States. He says maybe we need to make the economy more capitalist. Maybe we should open ourselves up for more business ventures. Maybe we should start reducing the military. That's the big one. Uh, fun facts about Gorbachev before I get into what happens with him. Uh, if you look, if you go back to the picture of Gorbachev, you'll see a very large port wine stain on his forehead. Uh, it's kind of his signature, I guess. He has this big, you know, not, it's a, it's a mole. It's, it's, you know, it's a birthmark. Port wine stain. Uh, when I was a kid, some people thought he was the Antichrist because that was the mark of the beast. I'm not making that up. They thought Gorbachev was the Antichrist because of the mark of the beast. Um, they thought that was 666 somehow in Braille or something. I don't know how they can make that look like a six, but... I guess if you want to think that, you can. Uh, the other thing about Gorbachev is if you Google Gorbachev Pizza Hut, later on he makes a commercial for Pizza Hut. Basically like, hey, you know, Gorbachev opened up uh, Russia for, for freedom and hope and pizza! Hooray for Gorbachev! It's the most surreal thing you'll ever see in your entire life. Now the thing about Gorbachev is he is indeed interested in demilitarization. And he is interested in getting rid of nuclear weapons. In fact, all nuclear weapons, provided the U.S. do the same. Uh, he and Reagan, if you go over one slide, you're going to see him and Reagan together. They actually have a fairly famous um, nuclear arms discussion in Reykjavik, in Iceland. And basically Gorbachev says, hey, you want to get rid of uh, you know, nuclear intercontinental ballistic missiles? Cool. Get rid of all weapons. He says, if the U.S. gets rid of all their nuclear weapons, we'll get all of our nuclear weapons, too. And this takes, this takes uh, Reagan aback. Reagan is like, wait, what? Uh, uh, okay, yeah, sure, we'll get rid of all nuclear weapons, which Reagan's uh, foreign security people were, like, freaking out. They're like, no, don't get rid of all nuclear weapons. But the sticking point for Reagan was uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, Star Wars. Gorbachev said, we need to get rid of Star Wars, and Reagan refused to get rid of Star Wars. I need to mention, Star Wars didn't actually exist. It was all hypothetical. There were no actual satellites in the air, and yet Reagan would not give that up. In fact, Reagan refuses. He leaves the negotiating table. Still, you need to realize, Gorbachev plays a very interesting foil to Reagan, because Reagan is talking very tough about the the communists you know when he goes to the berlin wall mr gorbachev tear down this wall he talks tough to the russians and gorbachev is completely being unthreatening he's like yeah we should get rid of all this stuff you know what yeah we should get rid of our nuclear weapons we should demilitarize. and by the time the cold war ends which is next class it's gorbachev who's going to get the nobel peace prize um fairly deservingly but reagan is going to get a lot of the credit if you talk about who ends the Cold War, if you ask conservatives, they will tell you it's Reagan. You know, he gives a speech to the Cold War uh, at the Berlin Wall, at the Brandenburg Gate, but it's actually um, it's actually Bush who has the Cold War end under his term. 
Gorbachev, like I said, he's a very interesting character. He is fascinating. Um, as you read the Cold War book, you're going to learn more about Gorbachev, more about Reagan, kind of how they all played their roles. I, I, I think what Gaddis has to say about that is quite interesting. So we're going to move on a little bit. Uh, you know, I am the culture guy. I am the pop culture guy. I can't not talk about 80s culture, albeit for a little while. Now, the first thing I want you to know about 1980s culture has to do with, and, and Reagan, I should mention Reagan becomes kind of a icon during this time period, has to do with AIDS. Uh, AIDS comes about in the 1980s, and Reagan's actually very quiet on the matter. Uh, one of the first time most Americans ever hear about AIDS is with the death of Rock Hudson. Uh, Rock Hudson was a uh, movie star in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he was a leading man in a lot of like romantic comedies, light romantic comedies. You know, like Doris Day is usually his uh, his his leading lady. Uh, Rock Hudson was gay. That was not known. That was pretty much an open secret in Hollywood. But the general public does not know that he's gay. Uh, however, he he gives an interview where he's like, "Hey, I've got H I've got AIDS," and then he dies like a month later. And that's also when it comes out that he's gay. Uh, Freddie Mercury also dies of AIDS around this time period. It's viewed as a gay disease for the most part. Um, the earliest name of it was uh, GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. But then they start realizing, hey, it's not just gay people getting this, uh, but it's still the public awareness is that they're gay. Uh, Rock Hudson dies in 85. That's one of the first times most people actually hear about AIDS. And Reagan is very quiet about this. Reagan doesn't use federal funding. Reagan really doesn't say anything about this. He doesn't say it's a public health crisis, even though there's growing evidence that not great things are going on about AIDS, and it's not just a gay disease. It's not just a disease of promiscuity. You know, people are getting it from blood transfusions and things. So I do need to mention AIDS. Uh, the other thing I want you to go over, if you go over one more, you'll see 80s culture. And 80s culture is defined by a lot of things. Um, the 80s are well-loved. They're very well-nostalgized. I was a kid in the 80s. I was a very small kid in the 80s. I was I was born in 84, so I don't remember too, too much of the 80s, but my siblings, who are about 10 years older than me, they remember a lot of the 80s. And it was a very, very interesting time to be a, be a young person, very interesting time in pop culture. A few things I do want to talk about. Number one is the resurgence of masculinity. Kind of this new surge of masculinity, reaffirmation of per, uh, traditional values. I think the, the, the symbol of the 80s was best emblemizes this surge of masculinity is Rambo. Uh, John Rambo, First Blood, First Blood Part 2, all these movies comes out. It's kind of a retelling of the Vietnam War where we win. Uh, the first one's somewhat realistic. You know, John Rambo's living in a town in the Pacific Northwest. I think he only kills one person in the first movie. But as the 80s went on, the movies become comically excess. You know, Rambo takes on an entire jungle of Viet Cong just wearing a shirt and a machine gun. He's sweaty. He's overly masculine. Uh, female characters in these movies don't exist as pretty much anything other than objects. They don't really have much of uh, character, much... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Much uh, direction, but very few objectives. Uh, very few motivations. It just it is kind of what it is. Um, other kind of reaffirmance of masculinity. If you go over one more, uh, pro wrestling, Hulk Hogan. 
Uh, pro wrestling gets really big in the 80s. It becomes much, much, much more mainstream. And it's very much linked to Americanism, jingoism, particularly with Hulk Hogan, who's viewed as, like, the American ideal of a man. He's, you know, train, say your prayers, take your vitamins. He'll fight against the, against the Iron Sheik or Nikolai Volkov, America's enemies, and yet America's going to triumphant. Um, as a wrestler, he's not the clean guy, though. He, he actually does do dirty tricks, but because he's good, because he's American, it's okay. And there's a lot you can say about that. I should also mention how the rise in technology, if you go over one more, um, allows for previously deviant behaviors to become more commonplace and able to be done somewhat respectably. Um, I am finishing up a book on record labels, but my long-suffering next project has been upon this. This idea that in the 80s, you have what I call respectable deviance. Behaviors that if they were done outside the home would be seen as something low-class or looked down upon, but now they can be viewed as somewhat respectably. Uh, for instance, video games. This is where home video games come for the first time. Uh, home video game systems come in. Home video game consoles. Beforehand, going to an arcade was seen as juvenile behavior, delinquent behavior. Uh, our video arcades were smoky. It's where you know teenagers wasted time. They, uh, you know, they were nothing good came of it. But if you could bring it home, you could see that oh my goodness, I'm playing Super Mario at home. It's clean. It's fun. It's possibly educational. Technology is allowing for this to happen. I mentioned that one of the one of the um, one of the main elements of this class is a rise in technology. This is where it really, really comes into play. Doing something like playing a video game at home has showed that maybe the behavior in of itself is not bad. The environment is. This also applies to pro wrestling. In 1985, WrestleMania comes around for the first time. Uh, I believe WrestleMania is happening this upcoming weekend, I, I think. Uh, I don't know. But... Uh, WrestleMania is interesting because it allows for what's called the pay-per-view. Beforehand, to watch wrestling, you have to go to the actual wrestling match, which is a low-class thing. It's, uh, it's large, it's sweaty, it's smoky, it's not the best people around. It's something that, you know, not good people do. Deviants would do. But now, you're able to do it in your home, in the safety and security of your home. You might have plausible deniability. You can do it at home and people can't see you here. Uh, this also happens in rap music. Rap music comes about in 1970 time as recorded. And rap music really comes to dominate the 1980s as kind of a resurgence of masculinity, especially when you get into gangster rap in the late 80s, early 90s. It's a reaffirmation of kind of overly done masculinity. Beforehand, rap music had to be gone to a rap concert, which is a live show. Now, to go to a rap concert, you have to go to, like, a place where juveniles is. Uh, for white persons, you have to go to a black area, and that might have some, you know, social shaming involved. You might not be um, respected or well-liked by your white compadres or your, the black audience, perhaps. But you can now listen to it at home. You can hear the goodness of rap in the, at home, and you don't have to deal with a place which may not be the best. You're not going to be hassled by cops listening to rap music at your own home. Uh, probably most keenly is in pornography. Uh, the VHS, the, the, the tape, now allows for pornography to be viewed at home, not in a pornography theater, which Times Square was known of. 
I don't know too much about this, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But just know all these behaviors are being done at the house. Another technology that changes everything, if you go over one more, is the personal computer. The microprocessor becomes much, much more common. It's still expensive. Uh, computers on this time period are quite expensive. I remember whenever I was a kid, my dad bought an Apple II GS, which is an Apple. Uh, it cost him, I want to say, $3,500 in 1986 money. So if you if adjust for inflation, that's probably around $10,000. It didn't even include a monitor. I remember it was just the computer. He had to buy the monitor separately. Uh, my grandfather, I remember one year for Christmas, bought my dad a color monitor. And that was a, that was a big fancy deal to get a color monitor. But personal computers, more than any other technology, change business. The internet is not around yet. When we get into the internet, that changes everything, everything. But personal computers change business. And it's the beginnings of its own computer culture. Likewise, cable television comes about. Uh, and cable television makes a lot more channels available. It erodes the monoculture. Uh, before this time, you had a very limited number of television uh, channels. Most people generally watch the same thing. Now you're having a separation in pop culture, the death of the monoculture, which is starting to spread in this time period. And because you're able to do things, more things at home, it really makes the home front, the idea of having a home life and a public life have some degree of separation, have an element of it. And I'd say it's the other element of 80s culture. But I think that's going to do it for right now, so let's just sum up Reagan very quickly. If you go over one more, you'll see the final slide of Ronald Reagan with somebody who may be familiar. It might be two presidents up there. Reagan is a very complex figure. All right, He is indeed the darling of American conservatism. He remains the standard of American conservatism for a very long time. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens once Trump is out of office. Um, Trump does have a lot of likenesses with Reagan. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, there are a lot of overlap with Trump and Reagan. Uh, they're both kind of showmen. They're both viewed as outsiders to Washington. Um, they're both very... Div they're kind of divisive figures. Um, there were a lot of people who did not like Reagan. Um, I'd say Trump is a bit more divisive than Reagan is, but Reagan was not like. There are some people who said that Reagan was an intellectual lightweight. Likewise, Reagan, Reagan was known for saying one thing, but often doing the other. You know, he might say things about, oh, financial responsibility, yet he had run up federal deficits when it came to military spending. He would talk about uh, how religion is such an important part of his life and the American experience, but he was consulting with astrologers the entire time he was in the White House. His wife, in particular, was. Nancy Reagan was consulting with astrologers, which is something that most, um, I would say most, you know, evangelicals are um, not too fond of. There's quite a bit of Reagan which seemed contradictory. And this is not to shame Reagan. I mean, this is not to say that Reagan was necessarily a bad president. I would never say that Reagan was a bad president. I would just say that he is a complex figure. And Reagan, in time, would become the standard bearer of what is American conservatism. Now, post-White House, I should mention this, Reagan is a bit of a non-figure after he's out of the White House. 
Uh, he gets Alzheimer's fairly early on. There's talk maybe he had Alzheimer's as president. That is a very dicey issue. I can't say one or the other. Um, he might have indeed had Alzheimer's as president. Did it impact anything? We don't know. But still, I want you to be thinking about that whenever you do your discussions. And likewise, when you do your, uh, your, your, um, your primary source analysis, you know, think about this idea of Reagan as a symbol. Who is Ronald Reagan? You know, if you look at the written response, the question is, how does public persona conflict with his actions? Why does Reagan become the figurehead for the new, the new right? As you can see, he is a complex figure. This is not a he's a hypocrite, okay? Do not, do not say I, I'm politically down the middle here, okay? I'm not saying that Reagan is a hypocrite, but it's undeniable that some of his actions don't necessarily stand up to his rhetoric. And I want you to get into that. And likewise, why does Reagan become such the figure that he becomes a standard bearer of a conservatism going on? I know this has been a longer one, but I think it's an interesting one. I honestly did not expect it to go this long, but it has. Um, and with that, I bid you have a good one. Um, remember, I should be in a giant beaver costume right now, but I'm not. But just imagine I am. Hope everybody has a good one. Take care.